0: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Israel and the Arab world reach out to each other in normalisation. The Abraham Accords, brokered and underwritten by the United States. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Scroll back in episode to a remarkable conversation with His Excellency Mansour Abulhul, UAE ambassador to the UK, which also includes an extraordinary tribute to Shabbos, Shabbat, from the Emirati Minister for Youth Affairs, who uses Quranic teachings to appreciate it. And then a couple of episodes further back to hear another UK-based ambassador, this time Hungary's Ferenc Kumin, to hear an appreciation of why
1: Israel is such an important partner in these changing times. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Noble words of peace and recognition
0: are expressed in photo calls on White House lawns and press statements, but there is something missing which would add weight and another dimension of purpose to it all. Something ethereal, but actually tangible in effect. It's justice, 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 justice. Justice, justice between nations leads to increased peace, security, and prosperity for its citizens. Justice in broadcast media so that untruths can't be narrated to millions, and all a step closer by reaching justice for Malki. Malki Roth, just 15 years old, was one of 15 victims of a suicide bomber at the Sparrow Pizza restaurant in Jerusalem in 2001. It was orchestrated by Ahlam Aref Ahmad Al Tamimi who drove the bomber to the site.
1: Johnny
2: Gould's Jewish State Correspondent, James Marlowe. The Spyro restaurant was on King George Street at the junction of Jaffa Road in the heart of the city centre of Jerusalem, for those who know the area. Now, at the time, I lived just off King George on Narquis Street, which was the continuation of Hama'alot. And... It's literally a few minutes away from the Spiro restaurant and I was walking up the road actually heading towards a friend who lost his young wife and it was the day that she was being buried and I was heading towards the old city of Jerusalem and I heard a massive explosion and by this time in Jerusalem we were pretty familiar with those types of explosions and my only question to myself was where did it come from which place has been hit if indeed it was a successful hit and I carried with me a mini radio which I'd bought in the Mahana Yehuda Shuk, the marketplace and I turned it on and uh, Two minutes later or something like that, reports started to filter through of a pigua in downtown Jerusalem, a a bombing, an attack, a suicide bombing. And I then was walking down King George Street. And, of course, the carnage that I'd seen was was massive. There was bodies, there was body parts laying around. And I stood Looking, because I was there the day before, I was inside taking away a slice of pizza the day before. And I stood there just looking, not really knowing what to do. And I've since been trained for CPR and I took a very quick Magin David Adam course. But but still, I remember seeing there was Zaka, there was Hatsala, there was other first respondents um, they were bringing out some survivors. They were laying them down in the street of King George. And and I'm standing watching from, from the street. And then all of a sudden, it was either a soldier or a border guard police person or a policeman that screamed in Hebrew, get away, there's a bomb, run, get away, run for your life. And he started to run. And other police people and soldiers started to run down King George Street, heading towards Kiranayatsod, and I started to run myself, because that was the the normal thing that you would do, along with other pedestrians, and I literally was running for my life, and and my heart was pumping, and I thought, there's a second explosion, it's just about to go off behind us, and I turned left, down a road called Histradroot Street, and I stood there behind a wall, and there was no second explosion, and the police people started to go back, the um army people and those and i i chose look this i'd come i'm not going back and i started by this time i'd missed the funeral um which i was originally heading to and i i think i started to to go back home it was it was a pretty horrendous day and i recall i recall very much that particular suicide bombing and you have to remember that they the explosive belts are packed with nails and glass and small metal objects to do the maximum amount of damage but out of the 15 people that were killed that day one of them was a family from the netherlands a jewish traditional family from the netherlands who went in there with seven of their children toddlers and youngsters and both the mother and the father were killed along with three of the children, killed. Three of them survived, and the other one wasn't actually in the restaurant. It was really a horrendous day. And you've now brought it back.
0: Tamimi was sentenced to 16 life terms by Israel for her role in the attack, but was one of the prisoners freed in exchange for the release of Gilad Shalit in 2011. Now, she lives freely in Jordan and openly boasts about how she orchestrated the suicide mission while at the same time presenting herself as a victim. Arnold Roth is Malki's father, and in this frank interview, he bears his inner turmoil to me about the loss of his daughter, but how terrible crimes, injustices and political mistakes can be turned around and how this moment of opportunity presents men and women of goodwill in Israel, Jordan and the US to use their power to achieve this. Now while you're listening to Arnold, join the campaign to change public opinion by signing this petition at www.change.org, extradite Tamimi, and the charitable work producing good in the name of Malki Roth.
1: From Great Britain, via Israel to the world, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends, spread the word, and subscribe now.
3: G'day Johnny, nice to be here.
1: Now, Ahlam Ahmad
0: al-Tamimi lives a free life in Jordan. Tamimi sentenced to 16 life terms by Israel for her role in the attack on the Sparrow Pizza restaurant. But worse, she's fated as a celebrity in Jordan since her release from prison.
3: Well, that's accurate. It, it takes my breath away even when I'm reflecting on it going on in my own life, let alone when somebody quotes it to me. But yes, it's, a, it's an appalling situation. And the most appalling of it is that we haven't succeeded in the years since March, February 2012, to have her brought in leg chains and handcuffs to a federal court in the United States because that's where she needs to be and that's what we've been trying to do.
0: Forgive me for the brass tacks of the questions uh, because I really do want to try and get the message across to convey it to the world uh, what this is about because despite being a convicted criminal, she's hailed as a cause celebre back home. She's presented as a victim rather than a perpetrator because she can't live with her husband. A breach of her human rights is the narrative in Jordan.
3: Yes, that's, of course, fairly recent in this overall quite dramatic and turbulent narrative. So let's start at that part of it. Her husband was deported, forcibly kicked out of Jordan on the 1st of October, three and a half weeks ago. He's not a Jordanian citizen, and as the Jordanians have told us again and again, or at least she's been telling us in the name of the government, it's a government that respects the law. Yes, it certainly, certainly respects the law. And in this case, for reasons that are worth speculating about, the law says that he's got to turn up every three months and the government official will extend or not extend his right to live, and there will be no discussion about it. So up until now, there hasn't been a problem. And frankly, I don't think there's been any publicity at all to the fact that he's had to do this. But on the week before the 1st of October, evidently a rather unpleasant conversation ensued. And he was told, there's no right to discuss this. There's no right of appeal. And there's no point in discussing it or trying to change it. You're out of here. And we're giving you until the 1st of October. And on the 1st of October, that's when the news broke. And we became aware that he had just left and was taking up residence in qatar and she was not and since then it's been even more interesting and uh, in some ways um, takes us into a whole new chapter in the story because she's now as you've exactly said johnny you've put your finger on it and, and uh, it's worth sticking our fingers all over it because what she's doing is saying i have constitutional rights i have human rights the absurdity of all of this is that some of the very serious journalists who have given her time simply neglect to let anybody know that while she has certain rights, she's forgetting to tell you that she's the most wanted fugitive female fugitive in the world today. She has a five million dollars prize on her head. She proudly confesses to planting the bomb that killed fifteen persons, fifteen fifteen people uh, on the spot, and then a sixteenth has remained in a vegetative coma since then and she doesn't give a rat's tail about what she did and in fact the only regret she has and she says it again and again is she regrets that she didn't kill more that's really the the stuff that the journalists forget
0: she is the woman who scouted the location for the attack she escorted the suicide bomber to the atrocity she speaks of the bombing as my operation she's thrived she's been allowed to thrive in jordan and of course she has communication skills. She was a newsreader at the time with, with quite a charisma which she has benefited
3: from. If you're making this stuff up I'm not going to listen to it anymore. Oh, wait a minute it's all true. Yes. Absolutely right. Um, her Her career as a person with a certain degree of charisma and training in journalism has stood her well. She has until fairly recently, recently as in the last couple of months, um, been writing op-ed columns and some news reports. She's graduated with a master's degree from a minor university in Jordan in journalism. But but the influence actually is, is a lot stranger than the bare facts. And since we're talking in the United Kingdom, let me mention something where the United Kingdom is front and The efforts of a CNN journalist who is today a member of the royal family in Jordan to drag, kicking and screaming, the state of Arab journalism into the 19th century or wherever it is that they now live, bore fruit in 2010 with the creation of a school called the Jordan Media Institute. It's a university level school and it's modeled after the alma mater of that particular woman, Princess Rim Ali, to give her her official title, which was the Columbia School of Journalism. And in, in 2014, right at the end of that year, and uh, and then mostly in 2015, I became aware that the student body at that elite school had elected Ahlam Tamimi, Ahlam Tamimi, the murder of my daughter, the proud engineer of this horrifying massacre, as their success model. I just repeat those words, success model. It, it, on discovering this, and no one picked it up in the media, it's all only reported in Arabic, I started shooting in various directions including at the uh, ambassador of her majesty's government in Amman Jordan and then ultimately to her bosses at the British Foreign Office and i want to tell you that uh, of the various governments who to whom i applied and who promptly terminated all relationship with the Jordan Media Institute and stopped their funding of its programs in the wake of what i told them the british were not part the british in fact Basically ignored me. I mean, they, they they spoke to me in in a rather unpleasant way. I would even call it rude, and then uh, continued to con- give the support as they do right up until today. Now I think that that really starts to uh, put this story, this this quite shocking narrative, into a perspective that anybody, ordinary Joe Blow, as long as Joe Blow pays his taxes in the United Kingdom, ought to be really annoyed about. With all of their high flying rhetoric and their pompous statements about peace and amity and great relations, the British are underwriting in a very meaningful way the horrifying career of this woman and the poison, the toxin that she injects daily into the bloodstream of Arab society in general and the Jordanian in particular. I think that's a horrifying thing.
0: It's very important that when journalism crosses boundaries, it is translated. So often, uh, when it goes through uh, different alphabets, different translations, we literally see narratives created through echo chambers. So, really appreciate you translating this and making this in English uh, for the benefit of. An Anglo-Saxon audience, but also a Commonwealth audience and a North American audience, a Canadian, Australian audience, South African audience too. Can we talk about BBC Arabic as well here? Because they profiled Tamimi without mentioning her boasting of her mur- murderous crimes in Jerusalem. And of course, it's this idea of making her a core celebrity to appeal to uh, the Jordanian audience. I mean, how, how how did that make you feel?
3: Uh, infuriated. Uh, allow me to use my words here because they're so core to the turmoil that's going on inside me at the moment. They didn't just fail to mention that she took credit for all of those deaths. She didn't mention. They didn't mention the deaths. They didn't mention anything about why she is wanted. Uh, why she's looked down. Uh, why she's regarded as a target by the government of the United States. They didn't mention the dead children. They didn't mention my daughter. They didn't mention the $5 million award on her head. They didn't mention the the refused request from the United States government to have her extradited by the Jordanian government that's being made and rejected time and again. They they didn't mention anything. They mentioned only that there's this conflict, and by implication a conflict between us, us Arabs, us Jordanians, I don't know, us people who are watching this TV station and them. Well, them is pretty clearly the United States and probably the people who own the United States, which is us Zionists. It's a, it's a, it's a shabby kind of analysis that unfortunately I see a great deal because I spend a lot of time really in the, in the cesspools of, uh, of, the, of the worst parts of Arab journalism. But in this case, this was the BBC. The BBC has an enormous mandate. The BBC has always been an arm of British foreign policy. And even if that's changed in recent years, what hasn't changed is that in 2017, the Foreign Office made a subvention of £291 million to the BBC to create a series of new products, one of which was a program called Trending for the BBC Arabic service. Now, there are probably very few people listening in who listen on a daily basis to BBC Arabic, but it's an industry. It's a very big business and the new program is particularly intriguing because it was brought into existence to put its finger on the pulse of arab society and to report on that now that sounds innocuous enough particularly if you are uh, of the view that arab opinions aren't heard enough in western society but now look at how this was translated into action they created without a doubt a tribute from a victim's perspective to the life of Tamimi, they invited her to speak. The presenter of the show actually says, and now we ask Ahlam Tamimi to speak, and she does. It's recorded, but she speaks into the camera and it's projected on, on the screen with the BBC logo in the corner. There's no suggestion for a second that this is some kind of problematic figure. It is us versus them, and us certainly includes that poor woman over there who says she has to live without her husband and is struggling after 10 days.
0: Now, as you say, the BBC has a mandate. Sometimes I feel, as a Briton who pays my licence fee, uh, that they are on mission creep. And when they translate into different languages, uh, the culture of the BBC doesn't necessarily follow it. And perhaps you're touching what the BBC Arabic service is. So firstly, they offered a formulaic apology. Uh, But since, after pressure from Bob Blackman MP, Conservative Friends of Israel officer, They added another apology. He wrote to the BBC's new director general, Tim Davy. You say they've lost their moral compass. They have replied to a higher level, but it's still not enough, is it?
3: Oh, it's nowhere near enough. First of all, the reply was, as you say, to a member of parliament. I'd like to see the apology made to the Arabic speaking viewers who were um, essentially exposed to some of the most toxic distortions that media in our day can possibly do. They whitewashed, they put it. They put lipstick on a pig. That's the expression that you hear a lot in America. They made something really hideous and ugly into something that sounds heroic and a cause worth getting behind. That's the BBC. Apologize to the people who paid your, your, your salary. Apologize to the people who were subjected to that messaging. They have no idea. All they know is what they're hearing from the Arabic media. The Arabic media says this woman's a hero. Why would you be part of that? So I'm speaking to the BBC. Yes, it's it's very strange. And uh, as much as my sympathies are with the people who run the BBC, and they genuinely are, and, and as much as I'm a consumer of the BBC, for years driving down from Jerusalem where I lived to Tel Aviv where I worked for most of the last 30 years, I would always be tuned into the BBC. Now I get it even better because I have internet in the car. The BBC is a, an asset to the world except when it's not. And when it's not and when it loses its mission and when it does something that I think top management are probably going to say without being abashed, this was a big mistake. The answer to that is, we'll now make amends. And that does not mean a well-crafted public relations uh, produced apology to a member of parliament or to the editor of the Jewish news, or even to Arnold Roth. What it needs to be is an apology in the full glare of the daylight to the people who buy their product. And that means Arabic speaking people right across the app right across the entire world, not just the Arab world. And they haven't done that. They've not given any sign that they're going to do that. And I frankly don't think that they even see it in those terms. But we will be making efforts to point out that that is really what they need to do.
0: Indeed. I think one thing that the BBC needs to understand is that every single one of their challenges uh, they're broadcasting in, in Arabic, in Urdu, uh, in multiple languages around the world, is that people consume those languages, whether they're a domestic service, whether they're a world service in foreign countries in real time. My friend who went to live in Israel, he's an Englishman, and we took a commute just before lockdown when I was in Israel for the last time, before obviously I, wasn't, I was disqualified from from coming. We took a 40-minute journey from the north of the country into Tel Aviv, and he put on BBC Radio 5 Live, which is a, a news talk station, which I was... It was novel for me, but of course this technology has been available to us for 15 years now, and, and I think that the BBC should be mindful Of how almost every product is a world service, and uh, that uh, their soft power should be used for good and uh, not not in this way.
3: You put that excellently.
0: This is partly the reason why I'm doing this today to appeal to the BBC to remember itself and uh, to look to its future in a slightly more holistic fashion than it than it used to be. Can I talk about security now, sir? Because Tomimi was one of a thousand Palestinian prisoners freed in exchange for the release of Gilad Shalit in 2011. How do you feel about these grandiose exchanges in terms of both justice? You know, they just pull a thousand people out of a variety of Israeli prisons. And of course, what brings with it future security issues for Israeli people and indeed tourists, indeed foreign nationals, because of course there were foreign people in the Sparrow restaurant as well. Uh, security issues that, that, that they must surely raise by emptying wings of prisons in such a way that, that could produce terror attacks like this for the future.
3: Um, I, I speak with great care when it gets to this stage in a conversation because I won't speak in negative terms about my own government outside of Israel. I can say that at the time of the Shalit deal, my wife and I did not campaign against the deal. We campaigned against the release of Aklam Tamimi. Indeed, we'd been campaigning to prevent her being released when it was clear to us that she was going to be released because Israelis of a certain cut wanted it, starting five years before the Shalit deal. Um, however, we always made it clear that this was a deal that will be, as the traditional Hebrew expression has it, b'chiyal adorot. We're going to be wailing about this for generations to come. And uh, as much as I identify with the words you've just used, I would urge you to also speak about those who have been murdered by the people who walked out in the Shalit deal, 1,027 of them. More than half of them were murderers going into the prison. More than half. That was never, ever said to the Israeli public. I knew it, and I've since documented it, but it needs to be brought out. This was a catastrophic, catastrophic deal. That's the expression that from it my wife and I have used again and again. We used it at the time. The issue is, in part, security. I completely agree with you. But in part, it's also something which is a lot more uh, abstract and, therefore, sometimes gets pushed aside, and that is justice. The political echelon makes decisions about freeing prisoners in order to make a deal. The political echelon didn't sentence them and the political echelon doesn't pay the price because for the most part the political echelon aren't there anymore now as it happens the prime minister who presided over the shalit deal is still our prime minister and i'm therefore always very careful not to say not to share my own personal feelings that's not to say that i don't have them but i think that it's wrong for me to be using the airwaves to to do anything uh, of a personal nature but almost every other politician in the picture those who gave their uh, approval to whatever the decision was are not there anymore as politicians they've gone they don't they don't carry the burden anymore the people who carry the burden well you know who they are they're the people who've lost husbands and wives and children and parents and this should never have happened the people who walked out to a man to a woman and by the way all the women tourists the terrorists in israel's prisons were released at that time uh, have left without paying the price without acknowledging what they did uh, and here I'll put some news out that some people I'm sure don't know. Every one of those uh, people walking out walked out not as a pardoned felon, not, even though it was reported the exact opposite of what I've just said. They were not pardoned. They all received a commutation of sentence. That's number one. And number two, those commutations of sentence were all conditional. Uh, In the case of Tamimi, she had already breached the condition of her commutation before her bus reached Cairo. She was already engaged in uh, active incitement to terrorism. She was singled out to have a meeting with uh, um, Khaled uh, Mashal, the, uh, the, uh, till today the, essentially the head of the Hamas in Cairo, and then she was put on a plane uh, as a VIP guest uh, to fly into Jordan, which is where she was born and had lived until a very short time before the murders. The, the damage done to the, the very notion of justice is something that you have to be a little disconnected from your day-to-day reality and what you had for breakfast, and a little bit more tuned into what are the values that guide our society? And if these people could be allowed to walk free without any politician or judge or any government official putting up his hand and saying, This is this can't possibly be. And yes, the whole analysis that Israel went through during those the two or three years leading up to the Shalit deal, where it was it was a, a an axiom that we have to do everything, we must do everything, we must bring Gilad back, is a nonsense. Not because life isn't precious, not because I want to see anybody suffer in captivity. He was a hostage. But because it's never as simple as that. It's always a multidimensional problem. And as much as there is an imperative to do what actually happened, to to save the life of, of Gilad or of anybody else, and we're facing the same issues today with hostages held by these these accursed uh, Islamists, there are other issues as well, such as, well, what if other people are going to get murdered by, at the hands of, the people who are going to walk free? And if that's not an issue, we're not really discussing issues, we're just discussing political campaigns.
0: And we are in a moment of normalisation, of peace, brokering uh, peace, are the Americans in the middle of an election which will produce quite a defined avenue either way with on depending on who's going to win but uh, Jordan has just extended its 1994 peace deal with Israel to include airspace agreements the US is Jordan's largest provider of bilateral aid it gives billions of dollars away why is the US cozying up to the king when Jordan gives ongoing sanctuary to the killer of an American citizen now let's uh, let's remind ourselves that um, your late daughter is was an American citizen
3: Yes. My wife uh, is an American and all of my children were forced to become Americans at birth. We didn't ask them, we registered them. You're making a, a, really the central point in the whole discussion. The United States uh, has, as a result of my going to Washington immediately after the Shalit deal and uh, having a meeting with top officials in the department of justice and the FBI um, issued criminal proceedings, uh, a, uh, an indictment was issued in 2013. We knew nothing about It, it was kept under seal and uh, we only learned about it in 2017. By 2017, as I now know, the United States had made repeated efforts to have the Jordanians understand their legal obligations under the 1995 treaty in which the United States under um, Clinton and Jordan under King Hussein, the father of the current king, reached agreement on a treaty that would continue essentially forever in order to bring to justice in the United States, one of the plotters of the 1993 World Trade Center attack. Many people will have forgotten that there was an attack before 2001, and uh, and people uh, people were taken into custody. And in fact, that plotter is still in prison. Um, so that treaty was brought into existence, and and here you won't find a single reporter anywhere who will say what I'm about to say, which is certainly true. And that is that again and again, the Jordanians have been asked by the United States to hand over fugitive terrorists under that treaty, and they have done so. And those Jordanians are today sitting in American prisons. But at the the juncture at which the United States asked for Akhlam Tamimi, who's really the same as all of them, except that she murdered a lot of Jewish children, except that she murdered a lot of Jewish children became famously iconic in Jordanian society, it suddenly became a bridge too far. And at that point, within days of our being told in March 2017, within days, six days, by the American officials who flew over here to sit us down and to say, we have news for you. There is an indictment against Tamimi. The Jordanian highest court, the court of Cassation, handed down a ruling with almost no discussion and with practically zero reporting that the 1995 treaty with the United States, its most important supporter, was null and void from the day that it had been And since then, there's not a single journalist anywhere in the world, in the universe, in the galaxy, who has challenged the Jordanians about the utter stuff and nonsense that they came up with in handing down that ruling. First of all, mention to your readers, let them know that even though we say the treaty is null and void, we have Jordanian fugitive terrorists who we handed over gladly to the United States and who are then adjudged and sentenced and are sitting for the rest of their lives in American prisons. not in every case. In some cases, they'll get up. But with Tamimi, no one has raised that issue. What I'm saying, and I've got to make it as clear as I can, is that the Jordanians are telling big lies. When it comes to characterizing their obligations to the United States, they're telling lies to their own people repeatedly, and they're ignoring whatever minor efforts are made by people in the West to challenge them on why they don't hand her over. And the flip side, and I'll finish with this because this is already a rant, and I apologize Johnny not at all the flip side of the Jordanians um, uh, being supported by the United States by its foreign aid program to an extent that is makes the United States its best friend, the flip side of it is that Jordan's number three in the league table of recipients of foreign aid. so that brings me to the last point I wanted to make in this character in this uh, section of it in December. 2019, we're speaking now 10 months ago, the United States Congress brought into law a provision that says that if you have foreign aid from the United States, that's number one, and you have a treaty, that's number two, with the United States, and you breach that treaty, that's number three, then the United States will discontinue the foreign aid, and the Secretary of State, the equivalent of the foreign minister, may veto this no foreign minister of the united states no secretary of state currently mike pompeo has vetoed this so the law of the united states right now says that the united states has no business funding all of the enormous problems that jordan has so long as it breaches the treaty
0: arnold are you hopeful that mike pompeo can do this on the basis that trump wins the presidential election how good are america being at the moment
3: um the narrow answer to what you're saying is yes of course i of course he can he can do it um his predecessor uh, tillerson could do it the obama administration could do it we're not talking here though at the level of uh, fantasies or building castles in the air they haven't done it no one's done it no one has done it no one's addressed it in a public fashion except that in the last year and a half there have been uh, some very carefully crafted statements from the state department of the united states Uh, responding to certain efforts that we made. And it's now clear beyond doubt that the United States says to Jordan, you may say that the treaty is not valid, but it is valid and you know it very well. What will happen next? Well, I'd have to say that the fact that the husband has now been given his marching orders from Jordan and is now in Qatar, far from his beloved, who says she doesn't want to go to Qatar, where she has residential status, by the way, and which is closely aligned with Hamas which is her party and with Iran which has provided funding all along she wants to stay in Jordan well that's her prerogative Um, I I can't say that I wish her a happy life I hope that things go from bad to terrible because we want her freedom and her fame and her toxic incitement to terror to come to an end she needs to be inside a US federal prison
0: Arnold this has dominated the last 18 years of your life and Obviously, this is very important that um, this platform is given to you. And uh, amid all this ugliness and how you've had to become an expert on diplomacy, on international politics, can we also use this opportunity to remember Malky as a good person and a a lovely child and uh, what she might have been in adult life and to talk about the good that you're doing in her name with the Malky Foundation?
3: So I'm very pleased that you... Have given me that opening. First thing is to say that Malki would now be 35 years old. Uh, we have our youngest child is extremely disabled and lives with us. She's blind and uh, needs care around the clock. But with the exception of that child, our other children have all started their own families and thank God have done well professionally and are living lives that bring us enormous satisfaction and, and happiness. And I have no doubt that Malki would have been. <coughs> I have no doubt that Malki would have been the same, uh, but it was cheated from Malki. It was cheated from us, and uh, there's nothing that we can do. Malki is not coming back. The only thing that is left for us is to help her place in the world be remembered. And it was during the seven days of the of the uh, of Shiva of the mourning period that I asked the kids to come and sit with me. From it, my wife was just uh, inconsolable and couldn't join us. Um, and we decided to set up a foundation which would do things that Malky herself had done to help care in the way that she did so lovingly with her little sister. We would help care family. We would help families care for their own very disabled children. So here we are, 19 years later. The Malky Foundation was formally registered immediately after the seven days of mourning, and the papers came out on the morning of a Thursday, Thursday, the 11th of September, 2001. So the certificate that I have on my wall is from 9/11, the original 9/11. And the, the connection's always been uh, sound, it seems to me, always quite, uh, quite meaningful. The work of the foundation is wonderful. We have an office in London. We have supporters in the UK. We do a lot of fundraising activity and a lot of awareness raising activity. And, and as much as I'd like to say it would really be great that you would remember Malki because of the good things that she did, I don't actually say that. What I would say, and I say it all the time, is it would really be good. If you would remember Malki and stop there, because the biggest nightmare, once you deal with the loss of a parent who's lo- who's lost a child to an unspeakable act of hideous, bigoted violence, lethal violence, is that your child will be forgotten, and uh, we 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 won't allow that to happen. So, the foundation exists the fact that the foundation exists lets me get up in front of people and say there was a girl called Malki and I'd like you to know more about her. go to our website and you'll learn some things about her. you may even want to sing her song she wrote a magnificent song a wonderful song which has now been recorded over and again in different places Uh, but the work that's done daily to help families who have a child with severe disabilities as we do in our home is is priceless and uh, if anybody has the inclination to want to have a look and learn more can i can i state the, uh, the the website of the foundation here johnny of course please do okay so it's www.malkifoundation.org.uk we do terrific work we're a well-run organization we're extremely efficient we have a terrific fellow called rob Taub who runs our affairs in london And if anybody ever does decide that they'd like to give us their support, I can give you my personal assurance, looking you right in the eye, as I'm doing right now, and say, you'll never regret it. The money's well looked after and we're a terrifically effective organization. I'm the honorary chairman. And for those who don't understand what the word honorary means, it means that I've never taken a penny from the foundation, nor has my wife and nor has our youngest child, because she was, by definition, we defined it ineligible to get support. But we have supported thousands of other families and about a third of them are not Jewish for those who um, are tuned into such issues, and those who have a problem with it, I'd like to explain that there shouldn't be a problem of any kind. That's that's the nature of living in Israel today.
0: And while you're on the search engine, also look for this ongoing war for more background detail, and indeed, there is a change.org petition as well at this time uh, in history as well,
3: Arnold. Perhaps you could tell us about that too. With great pleasure. We need to move public opinion in the United States, and one of the ways we're doing it, and there are several is a public petition on the Change.org platform, as you say, Johnny. Um, we have a petition there that I urge everyone listening to go and sign it. It calls on the government to ra- of the United States to raise its voice and explain to the Jordanians their obligations. It's as simple as that. The Jordanians need to extradite her to the American uh, judicial system. There is no, there is no case for T- Tamimi or for the Jordanians. It's all just invented, and only raising voices will help. So Change.org slash extradite Tamimi, one word.
0: Arnold, can I express my sincere condolences on behalf of me, my family, and, and all my friends, uh, Baruch Dayan Emet. I'm glad that we took this opportunity not just to talk about uh, this, this campaign to extradite Tamibi, but also to talk about uh, Malki as well. Arnold, thank you for everything and for granting me this, uh, this time uh, today, and uh, I wish you a long life.
3: Carly, you join thank you for the opportunity
0: just a reminder of those links again to help change public opinion by signing this petition please go ahead at www.change.org slash extradite to mimi and the charitable work producing good in the name of malki roth it's at the malki
1: Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State And be first to hear the next show by subscribing now Follow Johnny Gould on Twitter and Johnny Gould Show on Facebook And if you liked what you heard today, leave a rating or review That really helps bring more listeners to the show